When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday, the Ben is at nursery, the pot of Yorkshire. It's been drunk and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. This is the Noughties Nostalgia podcast and this is episode 42. And since we're at the business end of the season trademark, it's only right we take a look at the Champions League finals and we're taking a look at the Champions League finals of 2004 featuring Porto and Monaco and that famous night in Istanbul in 2005, of course, Liverpool versus AC Milan. In this week's Table Never Lies, we're going to go to Serie A and to Italy for the 2006-2007 season. A season without Juventus in it, so who's going to take charge of the Scudetto this season? Find out later on, I'm sure you all know. Find us on Acast, Spotify or Apple is the third podcast out platform I was searching for there. Give us a nice little five-star review, helps boost the algorithms and uh, of course followers and subscribers everywhere where you find what if football, Twitter, YouTube, everywhere, that'd be lovely. Let's get stuck into episode 42, shall we? So to cover the 2004 UEFA Champions League final, we've got to discuss France's love-hate relationship with the European Cup slash Champions League, and therefore we have to go all the way back to the European Cup's inception in 1955, where... The winners, of course, were Real Madrid, as they would be for the first five, but the losing finalists of the very first final were French. Stade de Ram were in the very first European Cup final, of course, losing to Real Madrid. It took another 20 years before another French team would reach that summit, the silver medalist stage of the European Cup, and it was this time. Another team losing to a big dynasty. The big dynasty this time in the 70s were, of course, Bayern Munich, their third European Cup in a row, trying to emulate that Real Madrid Real Madrid team of the 50s. And uh, Saint-Étienne in 1976 were the losers this time. Marseille, uh, some 15 years later, had a crack off it um, against Real, Red Star Belgrade. Yugoslav team, they played for penalties despite having a fantastic team. 
they play for penalties day one and Marseille would return the only uh, the only French team to be in two European Cup finals. They return for the iteration of the first ever Champions League. So we've got a French team in the first European Cup final, French team in the first Champions League final. Slightly tinged with controversy following the uh, last game of the league and season that season where they ruled in favour of against Marseille and match fixing allegations. They would be demoted. They'd lose their fifth French title in a row. And aside from these finals, of course, before 2004, you've got Bastia in the 1978 UEFA Cup final against PSV and Monaco in the 1992 Cup Winners' Cup final against Werder Bremen. Both of those teams would lose those finals, as would Bordeaux in the 1996 UEFA Cup final, losing to Bayern Munich. And that year, PSG won that year's Cup Winners' Cup, only France's second European honour, of course, behind Marseille in 1993. So early French football in the 90s, possibly on that roller coaster towards that domination internationally in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s with the national team, would be uh, seen in the early 90s. The French club's doing very well. PSG returned to the Cup Winners' Cup final the following year in uh, in 1997, but would lose to Barcelona, and then nothing for seven years. Of course, Marseille were domineering in this time in the early 90s, they were in the midst of four titles in a row. The Red Star Belgrade team was absolutely superb. Jugovic, Prozineski, Sinisa Mihailovic, Darko Panchev, Dejan Savicevic. Marseille had the likes of Basili Bolli, Chris Waddle, Jean-Pierre Papin, Abide Pelle, fantastic team. And Marseille at the time were superb. They would have um, they would have won the fifth title in a row, as I say, but they had it expunged, match fixing, got uh, dumped out of the out of the top flight of uh, French football because of that, despite winning it, which is a feature of Italian football in the mid-2000s, some uh, decade on there, because they wanted to rotate ahead of the Champions League final against Mass, against Milan, Milan um, with the likes of the Free Dutchman, etc. We've got the French teams doing kind of well in the European Cup. We've got Monaco in the semi-finals in 1994 and 1998, PSG in the semi-finals before those two Cup Winners' Cup finals in 95 Nantes made it in 1996 so it was a routine pilgrimage to the semi-finals amid the pretty much it's, it's a, it is a dominance from La Liga teams and Serie A teams Ajax did win it in 1995 but that was an outlier really and from 1999 to 2003 there was no French knockout stage representation French league was seemingly a free-for-all you had different winners every year which is very good for entertainment wise but in terms of building a dynasty like we see now all across Europe Bayern Munich in Germany Juventus in Italy PSG of course in France it doesn't help um, the European the European performance and this is before the money went up but then in 2003-04 we had two representations for France and it was in the shape of Monaco and Lyon Lyon who had won the past few league and titles but Lyon were the team out first out of the quarterfinals and they would be in the successive three seasons they would of course make semi-finals in 2010 and 2020 and since Monaco's final in 2004 beating Chelsea to get there only PSG have replicated them of course losing to Bayern Munich last year and last year we could have had a an all French European final for the very first time I asked you who you who your favorite French teams were Lelouch and Harry Holland both said Monaco Lelouch Monaco, specifically Monaco of 2017 and states that we could have a what if if all those players stayed and yeah, I'd say keep your eyes eyes and ears peeled for that one because it's definitely coming in the future and Harry Holland says Monaco because of their stadium and is fantastic, routinely held the Super Cup final. 
Monaco, of course, a stadium that holds about Monaco Stadium probably holds around the same as the Shea near to me in Halifax, but that's by the by. Maybe the Shea can hold a Super Cup final. And finally, Marco J, he points us in the direction of a pretty much a love letter to Olympique Marseille on his uh, post from FrenchFootballWeekly.com, a fantastic post. He speaks of learning French at school, so having time to having to spend time with uh, French teaching assistants, French people, and they told him of the tales of a Stad Velodrome from the early 90s. And uh, Marco actually went on to see Marseille playing the, in Northern England against Bolton, against Liverpool as well. And of the time, yeah, Marseille, I remember watching, was it, it would have been Marseille in um, the early 2000s in the Champions League. And yeah, the kits as well, fantastic. I always go back to the vivid colours, the white and the light blue as well. So on the other side of things, we've got Jose Mourinho, we've got Porto, as we spoke of last week. He rides again. He's coming off the back of three trophies in 2003, but this time he's going for one better. The Primera was wrapped up before he was defeated in the league and two late, uh, a late defeat there for him. Two late defeats, sorry. Uh, so I'm eight points ahead of Benfica finishing up there. Benfica, who 10 days prior to the Champions League final, ended Porto's proper quote-unquote treble dreams, which is the primary cup competition, the Tassa de Portugal, Primera and the Champions League somehow scoring the late sickener in extra time there in the final in a 2-1 win for Benfica but the main trophy that Mourinho hadn't won yet was the Champions League and he announced himself to the wider English audience at least to my eyes in the last 16 there the win over Manchester United the equaliser in the last minute from Castinha dancing down the touchline and Leon were next Leon who if you were listening mere minutes ago exited at the quarterfinal stage so therefore it was a final four field of Deportivo, Porto, Chelsea and Monaco provincial clubs really they were not the dynasties of Bayern Munich's, Real Madrid's, Manchester United's etc it was pretty much anyone's game Chelsea at this stage it was new money it was Claudio Ranieri in the other semi-final Derlai snatched the semi-final with the only goal across um, across three hours there for uh, Porto in the on the hour mark in Spain Meanwhile, Fernando Morientes taught Chelsea a lesson away from home. So two away wins in the second leg there against the run of play, perhaps, or against the uh, the bookmakers' uh, odds, perhaps. So going into the final in Gelsenkirk. And in the red corner, we've got Gail Give, Patrice Evra, Ludovic Juli, Fernando Morientes, a young Emmanuel Adebayor on the bench, which I didn't realise until checking the team sheets out yesterday. And in the blue corner, it's the team we all remember. Vitor Bayer, Paolo Ferreira, Ricardo Carvalho, Nuno Valente, Costinha, Manish, Deco, Derlai, and others. And Carlos Alberto, no, not that one. And no, not that one either. He scores a snap volley, putting Porto into a 1-0 halftime lead. But in the second half, Porto sealed it. The two heroes of the 2003 UEFA Cup final that we spoke of last week, the win against Celtic there, they linked up. They got the goals. Back in Seville, Deco slid in. Elenichev for the goal. In Gelsenkirk in a year on, Deco scored one of my favourite ever Champions League final goals, fools the Monaco keeper, sits him down and dinks it through. A crowd of about three or four players who've done likewise in the Monaco defence. And then moments later, Elenichev kills the game off 3-0. I think it is tied with 2017's final in terms of biggest 21st century Champions League final wins. I might be slightly, I might be missing a big albatross there, but that's a, it wasn't a pasting in the, in the natural sense, but it was two goals running quite late when Monaco needed a needed a final goal. Monaco wouldn't return to the latter stages until the 2015 quarterfinals where we had the likes of Anthony Martial, Condogbia, etc, etc. And then, of course, two years later, went one better, killing Mbappe, 
Bernardo Silva, Benjamin Mendy, Fabinho, semi-finals in 2017. Meanwhile, Porto haven't progressed beyond the quarterfinals since. Could have done this time round, but they missed out to Chelsea. And I asked you for your best Champions League finals, and they were two glaring, obvious choices here. Lelouch goes for both of them, 1999 and 2005. Obviously, the comeback for Manchester United and Liverpool in that one. Harry Holland also says 2005. And from a Chelsea point of view, George HS2706 says 2012. And personally, bias creeps in and says 1999 for me is my favourite I can't argue that 2005 was the best Champions League final. The, the obstacle overcoming Liverpool. Liverpool were by far the underdogs. If you go blow for blow, pound for pound there with the teams that Milan put out, the diamond, the 4-3-1-2, that they, it, they, position by position, they had the best. And for Milan to race into that 3-0 lead and Liverpool drag it back, it just shows that sometimes intangibles like team spirit and the crowd often quite is useful in these scenarios, which is obviously what Anfield and Liverpool and European football is entirely built upon. And talking of the 2005 Champions League final, we'll look at it in detail after this short break. For all the plaudits that Inter Milan and Helenio Herrera get from the 1960s, it was actually AC Milan to be the first Italian club to win the European Cup with a Jose Altafini double in 1962. It overturned a great... A great team from the era, the Eusebio Benfica team, ending their two-year European Cup dominance. They were after three in a row, after Real Madrid had won five in a row. But, as I say, Milan would be overshadowed by their black and blue neighbours, enshrouded in Catanaccio. Inter won the next two European Cups against those two domineering teams from the early days of the European Cup, Real Madrid and then Benfica. By the end of the 1960s, though, AC Milan would equalise that tally. They beat a young Ajax team 4-1 in the 1969 final, but then they would be succeeded by Feyenoord, Feyenoord who beat AC Milan, ending their reign in the last 16 the following season, and which in turn led into Ajax's three in a row, another dynasty. Milan would have to wait for another decade though for another European Cup campaign, obviously the days of qualifying only if you'd won the tournament or won your league. They went out to Porto in that very first round and wouldn't return for another nine years. This time, they were under the stewardship of Arrigo Sacchi, vacating any defensive Catanaccio styles in an attacking, fairly attacking 4-4-2. And two of their three famous Dutchmen, Rude Hullet and Marco van Basten, bagged braces against the 1986 winners, Stau Bucharest, some three years on in a 4-0 win. Perhaps the coming out party, perhaps the standing to attention, the the generational match, the one which we probably should all focus on in this was a 5-0 hammering of Real Madrid. Now, Real Madrid hadn't been successful in the European Cup since 1966, but they were still that team that had won the most European Cups. They'd got six and beating them 5-0. And of course, Real Madrid around this time in the 80s, late 80s, they were dominant in Spain. They'd won a couple of UEFA Cups. Obviously, everyone on these shows talks about the the final defeat to Aberdeen, but they, they had won back-to-back UEFA Cups in the 80s as well. In the following final, the 1990 final against Benfica, the third Dutchman got the winner in Vienna. Kind of fitting, really. Nice and neat, wrapped in a bow. Frank Rijkaard got the goal there against Benfica. Nobody would retain the European Cup until Real Madrid in 2017. Milan wouldn't win the three in a row, unfortunately, because in uh, they lost their crown, refusing to play when the floodlights failed 
against Marseille, attempting, perhaps, if you to be cynical about these things, attempting to place an asterisk against their failure to defend the uh, European Cup. And, of course, as stated in the previous segment, Marseille would go on to that final and Marseille would go on to the final in 1993 where whoever, none other than AC Milan, were waiting for them in the final, but Milan lost that final under Fabio Capello, Rigo Saki's successor. A year later, they were the underdogs this time. They played the 1992 Johan Cruyff dream team of Barcelona in 1994, though. AC Milan... To further hamper them, they were out the they were without the defensive partnership of Billy Costa Curta and Franco Baresi. Paolo Maldini tucked inside from his left back berth to play centre back. They'd shed their Dutchman in uh, Rijkaard and Hullet. Marco van Basten was amidst injury problems too, so they were depleted to say the least. But in their absence, you had Marcel Desailly plucked from Marseille. He capped things off against uh, against Barcelona here with the fourth goal of four. Daniel Massaro, Dejan Savicevic with a wonderful volley, uh, lob, sorry. And that meant number five and only one behind Real Madrid now at this stage. Flipping the coin, we have to start in Leeds Road in Huddersfield, where I currently work. Bill Shankly was taken from Huddersfield Town in 1959, joining a team that finished in the top four of the second division, the second tier of English football in four successive seasons. Huddersfield occupied the same division at this stage as well. And in his second full season, Shankly would take Liverpool up. By the end of the 1960s, Shankly would gift Liverpool two league titles and bizarrely, when you think of the rich history of Liverpool, gifted them their first ever FA Cup in the mid-60s. They ventured into Europe for the first time, losing in the semi-finals of the European Cup to the eventual winners Inter Milan thanks to a superb comeback from the Italian team in 1965 before the extra-time heartbreak against Borussia Dortmund in the 1966 Cup Winners' Cup Final. Could be parallels there with the 2001 Alaves Final, which uh, Liverpool fans were celebrating the 20th anniversary of there with the extra-time defeat, though, on this occasion in 66. Shankly would win a third league title on their first European honour, which was the UEFA Cup against Borussia Mönchengladbach, a team inextricably linked with Liverpool on their first forays into Europe. That came in 1973, before Shankly signed off with the FA Cup in 1974, the foundations were pristinely set for the future for Liverpool. He modernised the training ground Melwood, revolutionised training, revolutionised development and his underneath coaches in Bob Paisley and Joe Fagan, they had come and gone by the mid-80s and by the time Fagan left, Liverpool won four European Cups, they dominated England, didn't fall off the podium of the, of the Football League for nearly two decades. Borussia Mönchengladbach were the team that Liverpool beat in their very first European Cup final, 1977. King Kenny joined that summer and got the winner against Club Bruges a year later, eclipsing Manchester United as an English team with the most European Cups, also the first English team to retain the European Cup, but they were joined in 1980 by Brian Clough and his Nottingham Forest side, who briefly took over in 1979 and 1980, wins over Malmo and Hamburg before Alan Kennedy, got a winner in 1981 in Paris against Real Madrid, which meant Liverpool returned to the summit in terms of English teams and the European Cup 3-2 against Nottingham Forest. Liverpool would go on to beat an Italian team on penalties with a spaghetti-legged goalkeeper in the red of Liverpool. Not the last time you'll hear this on this podcast today. But the following season's final changed football history. The Hazel disaster, the 1-0 loss to Juventus in 1985, which meant a 
not only a ban for Liverpool, but a ban for English clubs in Europe. And Liverpool wouldn't return, at least to the European Cup, now known as the Champions League, until 2001 under Gerard Houllier. They were beaten in the quarterfinals by Bayer Leverkusen, who were on the way to their first European Cup final. And their second ever knockout phase appearance in the Champions League would be this season, 2004-05 season. And it all started, believe it or not, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that is because Graza, a.k.a. the Austrian team, their ground is named the Arnold Schwarzenegger Stadium and they played host to Liverpool, Liverpool winning 2-0 in that qualifier and that kick-started Liverpool's campaign here and Rafa Benitez's first competitive game with Liverpool. Michael Owen would be on the bench that time in that qualify, in that qualify but Benitez would sell him. He'd bring in Xabi Alonso, a definitive sea change of the past of Michael Owen in the 90s and the early 2000s. Gibral Cisse, Louis Garcia... Fernando Morientes also joined throughout the season. In terms of domestic football, Liverpool were far from perfect in the league. They won 17, they lost 14. They were consistently inconsistent. I hate that phrase, but that's what they were. They finished fifth and with 58 points, it was Liverpool's lowest points tally in six years. So the lowest points tally since the early, very early days of Gerard Houllier. In Europe, however, they came alive but they wouldn't come alive until the latter stages of the group stages. They did beat Monaco in the first group match, but they had to wait until the fourth match day for the second win, a 1-0 win in Spain against Deportivo, a team probably with more recent European Cup pedigree than Liverpool. Deportivo had beaten the likes of Manchester United, Arsenal. They got far in the European Cup, the semi-finals of the previous year, as we discussed. A loss in Monaco on match day five meant a two-goal win was needed against Olympiacos at Anfield. Step up, Captain Fantastic Steven Gerrard underscored with the, the superb, timeless Andy Gray commentary. The volley with just minutes minutes to go. 3-1 Liverpool. The iconic nights under the Anfield lights, they'd, uh, they'd returned with a bang. The ghosts of 2002, though, they'd be vanquished in a routine, to be fair, win over Leverkusen in the last 16, a 6-2 aggregate win. And we had the victories over Juventus there, which uh, Jamie Carragher said it was... They didn't trouble them too much and it was easier than what they'd expected. And that gave them the belief to then go and beat AC Milan. Juventus were, of course, at the time, Serie A champions. Then you had the goal from the moon from Luis Garcia and all this bubbling hysteria was about to come to a head in Istanbul. Liverpool had built their campaign on underdog status. Juventus were the favourites in the quarterfinals. Chelsea with Mourinho romping away to the English title at the time. They were favourites in the semi-final and... Something that all Liverpool players now are probably in agreement with. It was supposed to be a transitional season under Benitez's first season at the club. And in the final, going into the final in Istanbul, Rafa opted for Harry Kuehl as opposed to Dietmar Hamann to sit deeper and control that midfield, as he had done at times during the campaign. Gerard would often sit on the right of a midfield, which seems implausible now, but it worked in Europe with the Xabi Alonso, Dietmar Hamann double pivot if you're going to call it that, in the, in the centre of midfield and give them give them a bit more control in that middle of the park. And it could be used as a second striker, which we'll see later on. Kuehl, though, this time he was a second striker in behind Milan Barros, Luis Garcia on the right, Gerard and Alonso in the middle and Risa a bit slightly more forward on the left wing there. The plans are intact, as safe to say. At, at half-time, Paolo Maldini headed in early on before a minute was even on the clock. The game plan was dead in the water. Milan's diamond of Andrea Perlo at the base, he was pulling the strings. You've got Seedorf and Gattuso harrying and just making a nuisance of themselves. Kaka, he was creating chance after chance and they just swamped Liverpool's midfield 
of which Xabi Alonso was just being exposed readily as the only defensively minded player in that Liverpool midfield. And the beauty of the diamond, AC Milan's diamond, was it meant that Jamie Carrigan, Sam Hoopier at the defence centre-halves, they were being occupied by a two-man attacking Andrei Shevchenko and Hernan Crespo. They couldn't do much to uh, get out and stop the midfield because they had problems of their own to deal with. And of course, Crespo would get goals two and three. He's, he's chip one of my favourite Champions League final goals alongside Deco's in 2004. Of course, Solskjaer's in 99 as well. Paco Esterian, the uh, former assistant manager under Benitez, he boiled down Liverpool's tactics. They were to go with attack is the best form of defence. They were going to use Harry Kuehl to pin back Perlow and stop him playing his game. Needless to say, it didn't work. Kuehl was injured for quite a lot of the season. He would come off halfway through the first half. In came Vladimir Schmitzer. And what is forgotten that Liverpool quite possibly should have had a penalty for an Alessandro Nesta handball at the back. It wasn't given. Maybe in the, in the 2021 VAR world, that would have been given. And in the uh, halftime break, the story goes that Rafa Benitez was shifting to a back three no matter what. Um, and Jimmy Traore was summoned to the showers. He was to be substituted off. Dietmar Hammond was to come in. However, in the shower, though, he was about to turn the shower on. Um, he was told he was back in. Steve Finham came off with a groin problem. And here we have... Jimmy Traore in a back three alongside Carragher and Sammy Herpia with John Anarisa at left wing back. John Anarisa at left wing back, Vladimir Smisa at right wing back. Haman and Xabi Lonza occupying Kaka in that more defensively minded two in midfield, which gave Liverpool a solid base and it allowed Luis Garcia and Steven Gerrard to have the licence to roam behind Milan Barra's two second strikers almost with that width out wide from uh, the wing backs there. Liverpool came out for the second half to a quite sombre rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone from the fans. There'd been a glint of an omen, a glint of a chance maybe that Liverpool could possibly overturn it because Milan had been overturned by Deportivo the previous season's quarterfinal losing 4-0 after leading 4-1 on aggregate, but of course that was over two games. But the captain's goal, more captain heroics from Steven Gerrard, rising highest in the box to glance a header in an iconic header. Then Vladimir Schmitz squirmed a low effort through Dida two minutes later. Milan now were definitely on the rocks and they had to get a goal because the momentum was with them. If they would have waited until the last few minutes, it might not come. But then Steven Gerrard went down under a Gennaro Gattuso challenge. Whether your opinion is it's a dive or not, Regardless, it doesn't matter. Liverpool had a penalty. Alonso was to take. And I never really recall him taking many penalties. Um, but he says he didn't feel the pressure. Needless to say, it was saved by Dida. But, crucially, the Spaniard, in his first season at Liverpool, let's not forget, rebounded the goal, the penalty in, and it was 3-3 with half an hour to play. But that quick six-minute spell, that was enough for Liverpool to just simply hang in through the game for the rest of the game. The tired legs... Slightly rejuvenated with the uh, substitution of Gibral Cici. Of course, they'd used two of their subs before the uh, second half even started. So they were tiring towards the end of the 120 minutes, as it were, as it would go to extra time. And no real opportunities passed for Liverpool. Of course, they did for AC Milan. And one of the best double saves I've ever seen from Jersey Dudek. And now to the penalty shootout where Dudek would perform more heroics. And that's where Matty McDonald's memory of this match is Jody Dudek's spaghetti legs and just Jersey Dudek in general there. And yeah, for me, yeah, you've got to hack him back to Bruce Grobbler. So Genio missed AC Milan's first penalty. Haman 
took the advantage, scoring Liverpool's first penalty. Actually scored that with a broken foot and running just on pure adrenaline there. Andrea Perlo missed, which is unthinkable. And then Gibral Cissé drove home that advantage and Liverpool were 2-0 to the good in the penalty shootout. That never rarely, that very rarely happens. And by the time Vladimir Shmisa took Liverpool's fourth, it was 2-2. John Dal Thomason and Kakar had scored. Risa, he has attested since uh, that he went to play it safe. He usually thunderbolts it into the uh, into the corners, but he played it safe and his kick was saved by Dida. And then with his last kick in a Liverpool shirt, Vladimir Smisa, who was off in the summer, angered because he couldn't get his Anfield send off. He wasn't even in the wasn't even in the squad in uh, Liverpool's final Anfield game of the season. Couldn't wave goodbye to the Anfield crowd, but he had his own place here, converting the penalty. Liverpool's third in the kick, and then we go back to Dudek spaghetti legs. Shevchenko clips it. He won, let's not forget, the Champions League from the penalty spot. Two years prior for AC Milan in what was Carlo Ancelotti's first Champions League. Ancelotti, Shevchenko, they wouldn't get the Champions League, of course, on this night. Dudek got stuck her leg out and Shevchenko missed. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know if he missed, he had a rebound of it in anger. I don't know if he missed that as well, but it would have been funny if he did. But the cameras obviously cut to the jubilant Jersey Dudek. Liverpool had won the Champions League. The two teams would meet two years later as um, as AC Milan would gain revenge. Pippo Inzaghi with the fluke or not free kick and Liverpool through Craig Bellamy got a, got a consolation there in Athens. Uh, Milan getting revenge. AC Milan in that time, like a bit like Liverpool at the time, they were both on the cusp, of, on the fringes really domestically over teams that were dominating. So in England we had... Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester United, all in that time winning the Premier League pretty much exclusively. Meanwhile, in Italy, Milan hadn't won, didn't win a Scudetto from 1999 until they won it in 2004. One brief, one brief league title, but then nothing until 2010, 2011, sorry. And it was this team just with the shackles off winning in Europe again and again. Obviously, three finals in four years. Ancelotti would become in 2014 alongside Bob Paisley the only manager to win three European Cups that has of course been equaled since by Zinedine Zidane and could be equaled by Pep Guardiola um, next week. Of course both teams would tail off in the 2010s. Liverpool flirted dangerously with administration. The Hicks and Gillette botched job of um, the takeover which of course saved by FSG and John Henry Milan have tailed off. They've only just, well, they look to be qualifying for the Champions League. I'm not going to say they've qualified for the Champions League because they're still in a race with um, Juventus and Napoli for that one going into the final day, which looks exciting in Serie A this season. But AC Milan haven't played in the Champions League for a long, long time. Liverpool went through a similar phase in and amongst the uh, managerial appointments of Kenny Dalglish in his return. You had uh, Roy Hodgson coming as well. Rafa Benitez's final days were underscored by failure to qualify for the Champions League in 2010. And they only returned in 2014 under the unlikely stewardship of Brendan Rodgers there. And of course, under Jurgen Klopp, have ascended to absolute greatness. I ask you for your memories of the match, Joe. Big Arsenal fan. He still never knows how Liverpool came back and beat that Milan team. I hope I've covered it and explained it for you today, Joe. And Footy Classic's a fantastic uh, Twitter account who cover who just posts pictures of book covers, their own custom book covers of classic footy 
as the uh, title suggests, games. And they left us a wonderful tribute to Jersey Dudek and his spaghetti legs. And I highly recommend you give them a follow on Twitter. Very entertaining. And Harry Holland as well, Dudek Spaghetti Legs is his abiding memory of that. George HS2706, from a Chelsea's perspective, he remembers being hectored into supporting Liverpool, being on a Liverpool forum, and they were spying on uh, one of Chelsea's forums and effectively trying to retrospectively police who could um, who the posters could root for in a in a thread which covered the final in the uh, in Istanbul in 2005, the good old days of the internet there for you. And yet Liverpool would be successful in. 2019 with their sixth Champions League title under Jurgen Klopp after failing, of course, in 2018. But they look to be reaching the summits again. The routine summits again, as they would do in the mid-2000s, as they, of course, did in the 70s and 80s under Jurgen Klopp, who, of course, has a contract until 2024. But this is a Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. And after this short, short, short break... We'll be going to Italy. We'll be seeing if AC Milan could be successful in the league, which they weren't. But with Juventus out of the picture, maybe another team from Milan could. And we'll check that out for the 2006-07 Serie A season. Welcome back. So this is how the Serie A table looked 14 years ago today. And now it's Italian leagues and Spanish leagues of the time. They finished quite late on when it was an odd-numbered year. So we still have two games to go 14 years ago today. However, the Champions League places the league has been wrapped up. Inter Milan have a unassailable 93 points with two games to go. You've got Roma comfortably in second place, not going anywhere on 72. Meanwhile, Lazio and AC Milan are both on 61 and could interchange quite easily. The battle for the UEFA Cup spots boils down to Fiorentina on 54, Empoli on 53, Palermo on 52, and on the other side of that, Atalanta on 49, looking for a way into the UEFA Cup. Obviously, different days for Ledea, who have sealed their Champions League fate again for a third successive year as we speak in 2021. Mid-table, hell is reserved for Sampdoria on 46, Udinese on 43, and perhaps Livorno and Torino on 39 could be dragged into a relegation scrap. They weren't safe just yet. Nobody was in the bottom half as we can attest to here with Palmer and Catania on 38, Siena and Cagliari on 37, Kievo were on 36, just above the dotted line, where as Regina were below the dotted line, also on 36. Relegated were Messina on 25 and Ascoli on 24, cut wildly adrift at the bottom of the Serie A table. And of course, there's a huge Italian name there missing, and that was Juventus because of Calciopoli. It claimed Fabio Capello was the manager, but brought in former player Didier Deschamps. And of course, Didier Deschamps was the manager of Monaco for the 2004 Champions League final, which we covered earlier, which wraps this episode of the Norwich Nostalgia podcast in a nice little bow. Some players did remain at the club. You've got your Gianluigi Buffons, David Trezeguet, Alessandro Del Piero and Pavel Medved. They'd be back the following season, still remaining with Juventus through thick and thin when they got promotion out of Serie B. But their team was gutted, really. Roberto Mancini was in his third season at the helm at Inter Milan. He would bring in Juventus' Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Inter, they finished third in the previous two seasons. The second season retrospectively upgraded to second place as they usurped AC Milan but weren't given the league title. The, uh, Juventus lost and some say they should have won it. Some say they, they finished third so they might not have deserved it, really. Um, elsewhere, Mancini brought in Maxwell, who followed Zlatan at this time. Everywhere he went, like his shadow, and Maicon, who would become a fantastic right-back, and Patrick Vieira. 
And Inter Milan did the social media cliched HMS piss the league, really, and with 93 points with two games to go. It's one of the all-time great points records up until a couple of seasons ago when we've got teams breaking the 100 points barrier seemingly every other year. Inter Milan dropped just 12 points before match day 32. That's six draws, really. When a late, late 3-1 loss at home to Roma came, it killed their invincible season. Inter would gain 97 points, of course, killing the Serie A league and would do until 2010, really. And Roma killed Inter Milan's double push three weeks later, the fawn in Inter Milan's side. Four goals in the first hour of the of the first leg of the Coppa Italia final. Saw Roma stroll into that title quite easily, winning the first leg 6-2, and Inter Milan won the second half, so to speak, winning the second leg 2-1. But of course, the title was Roma's. Inter and Mancini's was a match kind of made in heaven, beating the... Uh, Fawn in your side, Roma, to the Serie A title the following season by three points. Would lose a Coppa Italia final, another Coppa Italia final to Roma again the following season, which meant Mancini was to be sacked. And they were out in the Champions League last 16, both of these times to uh, Valencia on away goals in 2007 and Liverpool 3-0 in 2008, which couldn't have helped Mancini standing at the San Siro there because... Under the pressures of AC Milan winning the Champions League in 2003 and 2007, Inter were expected to go out and win a third Champions League of their own. The man who did bring the Champions League back to the San Siro, but in the black and blue ribbons, was Mancini's successor, of course. Jose Mourinho would change the landscape amidst Juventus's return. They would win the treble, of course, in 2010. Of course, Mourinho won the league title in 2009. That obviously, that dominance would end. That would uh, Inter Milan's last league title up until... This very year when uh, Antonio Conte and the likes of Romelu Lukaku, Lautaro, Martinez, etc. won the league title again for Inter Milan. Looking further down the league table, we've got Palermo qualifying for the UEFA Cup. We've got Fiorentina qualifying again for the UEFA Cup and Empoli qualifying for the UEFA Cup. All with a game to spare. So there was no, like this season, we've got an extra cup tournament, a tertiary European Cup tournament. And it's bringing out such battles as... Union Berlin versus Stuttgart for that final Europa League conference spot um, and West Ham versus Spurs, of course, of the battle of who doesn't want it the most. And here we have Sampdoria in what was, it, you can't really call it a tertiary cup because that was the Cup Winners' Cup at half a generation before, but they qualified for the qualifiers of the UEFA Cup, the Intertoto Cup. Uh, it's going to be one of the final Intertoto Cup segments, I'm sorry, but here we are. Sampdoria beat Cherno Mare. Bulgarian side, they beat them 2-0 on aggregate, qualifying for the UEFA Cup, but wouldn't qualify for the groups, losing to Alborg in that curious first round knockout stage that they had, uh, which was essentially just a qualifying playoff for the group stages. Fiorentina would be Italy's lone ranger in the knockout phase for Italy, and represented Italy quite well. Um, the stories of penalties really, they were through against Everton in the last 16, but they were out in the semi-finals against Rangers, Rangers who of course went on to lose to and it's in Petersburg at the Etihad and pretty much summed up Italian performance in Euro, in the uh, UEFA Cup Europa League post-1999. So between 1989 to 1999, we had 14 Italian finalists out of a possible 22. Eight of those 14 would win it into Milan, winning three, Juventus two, Parma two in uh, 95 and 99 and Napoli, of course, with Diego Maradona. And since the 21st century was birthed onto us, We've only had one Italian finalist and that was Inter Milan last year, losing 3-2, of course, to Sevilla. And translating 14 Italian finalists into the 21st century, we had eight other 
semi-finalists from Italy, so nine in total. We've got Inter Milan in 2002 and 2020, AC Milan in 2002, Lazio in 2003, Parma in 2005, Fiorentina 08, Juventus in 2014 and Napoli and Fiorentina in 2015. So I don't know if it's teams from Italy don't take it too seriously. We, uh, German teams haven't won it since uh, Schalke in 1997. They've had a couple of couple more representations in those finals um, with Werder Bremen, of course, as well, losing that final in 2010. Uh, it's just, it seems to be dominated by Spanish teams, by English teams. And I've got no explanation for it whatsoever because it doesn't make any sense. It's not as if do they not take it seriously because in the in the nineties it or is it because it's a weaker league? But in my mind at least, Serie A is probably on a par with the Bundesliga as being one of the stronger leagues in Europe. It's probably those two are quite close to La Liga at the minute. Obviously, the Premier League is showing itself to be the stronger competition in terms of domestically, and those successes now being translated into Europe with three English teams in the finals of the European competitions this season. And I just don't understand because Serie A is, if you look, if you watch Serie A football, they've quite clearly got seven very, very strong teams and teams like Atalanta coming up and upsetting it. In Germany, you've got teams like Frankfurt and Wolfsburg challenging for the Champions League. So you've got probably maybe six very strong teams there adding to Bayer Leverkusen and Borussia Mönchengladbach, that's seven really with Leipzig coming through as well. So it's not a shortage of very good teams in, in the uh, in the Champions League, European, in the UEFA Cup argument really. It's more the stronger teams in England and Spain are probably a lot stronger than the stronger teams in Germany and Italy, maybe for me. At the other half of the table, everybody in the bottom half could go down um, as we see in the league table 14 years ago today. Livorno in 11th place with 39 points, right the way down to 18th. But they would wrap this survival up, Livorno and Torino would. They would get a point, as well as Cagliari's fantastic 3-2 win against Roma, kept all three of those teams up with a match to spare. Not because they were on 40 points and Regina and Chievo on 36 points lost, but because of the all-or-nothing match on the final weekend of the season, which was Catania against Chievo. Essentially, winner stays up. Palmer and Catania and Siena could all stay up with a win, but Palmer were held by the Champions League-bound Lazio to a 0-0 draw in the Olympico, and Catania lost to Sampdoria away from home 1-0. Meanwhile, a Massimo Macaroni consolation in a 2-1 loss was Siena's fate against Palermo. Kievo got a 1-0 win against Basement Club Ascoli and they looked, to be fair, they looked safe on 14th on 39 points. And if you're 14th going into the, the final day of the season, you've got to be admitting now that you're a bit safe because all the other teams below you, they can't all win, surely. Um, Kievo were never supposed to be in this battle. The Flying Donkeys, they were fourth the previous season. They spent four of their five seasons that they'd been in the Serie A in the top half. Siena dropped into the relegation zone on 37 points, plus Regina's 3-3 at Empoli, which left the relegation scrap down to Siena on 37 points below the dotted line, Regina on 37 points above the dotted line, you've got Catania on 38 points, and then you've got Parma and Chievo on 39, which meant that if Chievo did lose, they had the safety blanket of Regina, Siena and Parma below them. Parma had a beatable Empoli, 
playing for significantly less. They'd already qualified for the UEFA Cup, as we said. The big basement battle, of course, Kiev and Catania, while Siena and Regina were at home to Lazio and AC Milan in Champions League spots. Ultimately, though, they had nothing to play for and wins for those effectively meant safety because if they win, they go above Catania or Kiev and both couldn't win. So a win for either of those would keep them up. The task was simple for all the teams, really. Win and you stay up. Parma probably could get a draw at Empoli and survive. Empoli did prove beatable, as I say. Parma won 3-1 to claw to safety quite comfortably in the end, whilst Regina won 2-0 against AC Milan. They were effectively safe. And the same time as Regina confirmed the win with the second goal at home to AC Milan, Catania did likewise, winning 2-0 there. Meanwhile, Massimo Macaroni had put Siena head from the spot against Lazio, so as it stood... In one fell swoop, Kievo were down from 14th to 18th. But then with 16 minutes left on the clock, there was another twist in the tail. Lazio cruelly equalising Tommaso Rocci from the spot there. Kievo, the flying donkeys up as it stood, were flying back up the league, staying in Serie A. Siena going down, despite what would be a great point usually against Lazio. But then, four minutes from time, Simone Vergaslo and Daniele Galoppa exchanged a 1-2 edge of the box. Vagasola clips the ball and Paolo Negro was there, right on the spot, 35 years of age, dinks it into the uh, to the bottom corner, saves them with the goal. Siena win, Negro formerly of Lazio as well, his last goal of his career no less. His final game of his career kept Siena up in the top flight. Kiev were down, but of course Siena Siena were tragically, they were dissolved and their Phoenix club now plays in Serie D. Meanwhile, the flying donkeys of Kiev would go down, came straight back up and their second stint, albeit a bit longer than their first, was less successful with two top half finishes out of 11 and went down last season. Last week, they bowed out of the playoffs from Serie B, losing 3-2 after extra time to Venezia. Not seeing the game that happened last week, but it looks an absolute humdinger with three of those Three of those goals coming after extra time. Let's round things off with a 2000s trivial tease. We've just got the two correct answers today. Welcome back to the 2000s trivial teaser and questionable football quizzes and the FT Law podcast. Congratulations on your correct answer, which was, of course, Antonio Conte. Conte just sneaking in on the 2000s threshold that we have here on the 2000s trivial teaser. Conte was a midfielder. He'd played underneath Cesare Maldini and Arrigo Sacchi. He played alongside Didier Deschamps, Zinedine Zidane, Pavel Nedved for his club team in Juventus, and of course, on the international stage, Paolo Maldini, son of Cesare, of course, and Francesco Totti. Congratulations to you two for getting the correct answer there. We've got another midfielder this week, a midfielder who had played underneath Sir Alex Ferguson and Vincenzo Montella. Championship manager, 0102 legend. Played alongside Juan Cuadrado, Jose Basingua, Raul Morales, Gerard Piquet and Ronaldinho. A midfielder who's played alongside Juan Cuadrado, Jose Basingua, Raul Morales, Gerard Piquet, Ronaldinho and two of his managers were Sir Alex Ferguson and Vincenzo Montella. If you think you know the answer, let me know next week let me know on twitter at what if underscore youtube where i will be residing for the next week or so elsewhere will be also 
reside on YouTube where we're going to take a look at the 1999 Champions League final on Throwback Thursday. The best 90s Premier League players in Fantasy 5 aside, we're going to take a look at Sheffield United, Alan Pardew, Gillingham, the great 2010 World Cup game between America and Algeria in our what-ifs. We're going to take a look at the best Champions League final since it's Champions League final season. Nicholas and Elko have got a good biography on him and the video game review is a fantastic review on Sensible World of Soccer, that ultimate football video game from the 90s. Next week on the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, it's episode 43. We're going to take a look at the best international tournament shocks. We're going to take a look at England's campaign at Euro 2000 and Table Never Lies stays in 2007, but with the Premier League. Will Jose Mourinho get three in a row? No. We're on Acast, Spotify and Apple on our podcast feed every Wednesday with Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. If you liked the playoff review bonus I did this past week gone thank you for listening to that we've got a couple more bonuses upcoming with the reviews of the Premier League season we've also got a review of the European League so we'll take a look at the Bundesliga La Liga Serie A and Liga and in more focus there and of course more stuff going forward because it is the European Championships in a couple of weeks thank you for listening and until next time until next time you hear my voice on the YouTube See you there. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.